We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 300. I can't believe we are at this milestone. It was during the pandemic that I went from one episode a week to two episodes a week and just never stopped. So 300 episodes since starting in 2019, and we are just shy of a million downloads since starting the podcast, which is crazy to me. So just wanted to take a minute and thank all of you listeners. I could not do it without you. Some of you I know have listened to almost every episode from asking some of you, and that is just, I'm humbled and so grateful for all of you. So to celebrate, I wanted to have a very special dynamic duo on, a father-daughter, who are both Olympians, one of them holding the current world record of show jumping with 10 Olympic appearances, often nicknamed Captain Canada. So without further ado, please welcome our guests today, Amy and Ian Miller. Hi, Ian and Amy. Thank you so much for coming on. You're most welcome. Hi. Let's start with Ian. Tell me how you first got started in the equestrian industry. Well, I was, uh, my father was career military. He served in the Second World War and then stayed in the Army. And we lived in Ottawa, which is the eastern part of Canada. And I was just always horse crazy. And it wasn't in the family at all. And the milkman had come along. And I'm dating myself when I say the milk, uh, the, the wagon was drawn by a horse. And the guy would let me get up on, on the seat and drive the horse. Well, I thought I was driving it. I'd be really the horse knew exactly where it was going. And I'd go four or five blocks and he'd chase me home. So anyway, I'm driving my parents crazy about this. And my father was then posted to um, Alberta. And so they, they finally just shut me up, said, when we go west, you can start riding. And that's kind of how it started. Once we got out west, I started riding at a, a barn where we rode English and Western. We'd go to the shows and our britches and boots and everything else. And then halfway through the day, we put chaps on over our britches and boots and a cowboy hat and do the Western classes with the same horse. Wow. And then we do some Jim Jim Cannon classes, then maybe a few equitation classes after that. And this would all be in a one or two day show. So it was a very, very different sport in those days. Wow, that's so cool. Amy, what about you? How did you first get started in the horse world? Well, I was lucky lucky enough that uh, my parents had established Millerbrook Farm by the time I came along. And so, I mean, we had horses literally in my backyard. So there are pictures of me riding on the front of the saddle with my mom and my dad before I really even remember doing it. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me. Uh, I think that I really, one of, one of the great memories though is that I do remember is the first time I jumped. And uh, because I don't, I actually don't know how old I was, but I was very small hmm. and I was in a Western saddle and my mom was away somewhere for some reason. Oh, and classic. <laughs> <laughs> and I was watching my dad jump and I was like, I want to try that. So he says, go ahead. So I canter down to this jump in the Western saddle, which you can imagine doesn't Oof. go well with no. that horn there, you know, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, I was not deterred. 
and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's so fun. You both have had some very special horses over the years. Ian, are there any that particularly stand out to you in a way and why are those horses so memorable? A good friend of mine uh, wrote a, a book uh, called Partners and it was about all my Grand Prix horses and there were over 50, five zero of them in the book. Wow. Uh, so that's quite a few. And they were all they were all wonderful horses in some way. But the most complete horse for sure was Big Ben. He was one of those life once in a lifetime horses. But I had some other wonderful horses uh, in addition to that. In style was great. We won the, the silver medal in Beijing Hong Kong Olympics. Yeah, Dorncourt was a great horse. He did the uh, Olympics in Sydney. Uh, there's been so many of them, and I would tell you they all had one thing in common. They had a great heart and a great mind. Mm-hmm. So cool. Amy, what about you? Any horses that really stick out in your in your mind um, throughout your career that you really feel like have been special partners? And and what what, what about them do you feel like really made them special? Oh, for sure. Um, I think my top two are really were Heroes, the horse I took to the Rio Olympics. And um, we bought him as a seven-year-old. And it was just like, it was like hand in glove for that horse and I. We really clicked and we got along great. And the whole way around, I mean, he won a FEI Grand Prix in in Canada, a meter 45 class as a seven-year-old, which I've never had a horse that could do that before. And then he went to the Olympics as a nine-year-old. And uh, the whole time I rode him, it was just, we understood each other and he was sassy. And I mean, Ian would say not very, not very well trained, but he just he did it for me you know he, he liked he liked me and I liked him and actually yeah. that was the same with uh Costa Rica Costa Rica's dad a gray mare that I had for a very long time she actually competed until she was uh 17 years old and I wow. think we bought her as an eight-year-old and it was the same thing it was just the connection between the two of us was very memorable and and I guess that's, you know, there was another one, one the, the course I wrote in my First Nations Cup, uh, his name was Manhattan. And we used to call him Mad Maddie because he was, wow, <laughs> he was special. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, but same thing, he would do it for me. And that's yeah. sort of that, that connection all along the way. I have had some wonderful conventional horses as well. My first Grand Prix horse was a, a horse named Zegal. And uh, he was just a classical, lovely animal. And he taught me how to do the job. Uh, I got the opportunity to ride uh, an unbelievable horse named Mosini for a short period of time at the end of his career that my, my dad won tons of Grand Prix on. And again, he was classic and, and just a lovely, lovely gelding. And I think nowadays, the horses I ride now, Truman and Cristiano and the ones that I'm bringing along, they are more, they're more classic than the ones that I had in the past only because they have to be like you, you have to have your horse so well-trained to go around one of these five-star Grand Prix Mm -hmm. in these small sandboxes where the jumps are on average five strides apart from each other and on corners and everything, you know, you, you, they, they need to listen. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now you work together as Team Miller Brook, um, training horses and riders to you know really be at the top of their game. I know that your philosophy combines that classical training technique with 
that holistic approach to horse and rider. Amy, why would you say that that is so important for you to train in this way? It's really important to us that the horses are our partners in this mm-hmm. uh, experience. So basically, uh, to to be excellent, uh, we believe that the horse has to want to do it with you and for you, and wants to rise to the occasion on the special days. My my horses that that I ride, I mean, they Truman charges the in gate when when he gets like he wants to go in the yeah. ring. He's you know, heroes, yeah. heroes stood at the end gate of Aachen and he grew. Like I felt him get three mm. inches taller when he looked at those 50,000 people in the stands and he wanted to show off for those people. And that that's really, I think that that's the best way to get the best out of your horse. Definitely. What does that look like in your day-to-day training to try to get that out of your horse where they can really feel like they're in a position where they can be confident and they can shine under pressure like that. You have to incorporate positive reinforcement in your training. Mm-hmm. So when they do something correctly, you pet them, you give them a treat, you you let them know that they're good. And that's the same as when uh, when they do something, when they do well in the ring. And I heard something about... Um, Someone told me that they they were contemplating that prize giving is in certain situations not the best for horses because it's something they don't really know. But I have to say that my horses, I teach them to love prize giving because, you know, because it's their it's their moment to get out there too. And you give them lots of treats and you pet them and all that kind of stuff. And then also when you're training on the flat and and Ian is the master of this, but you really um you put them in the balance that you want them to be in and then you soften your aids and they have to stay in that balance. Mm-hmm. You don't hold them in the balance and in the shape, you show them what you want and then you soften and it's their job to carry that balance and shape. Definitely. You both have so much experience across the industry and I'm sure you've seen many changes, some great and maybe some not as great. Um, Ian, what is something currently that you feel like people might get wrong about training horses right now. And what are some things that we can do as a whole to try to fix that? There's great pressure on so many riders want to learn to compete. They don't want to learn to ride. Mm. And if you learn to, if you learn to ride properly, uh, competing will take care of itself. So just to approach the idea that I, all I want to do is learn to compete. You're skipping a step and it's highly unlikely that you'll have sustained success with that approach. So I try to get it into, into my students' heads that it is not your, your goals and your dreams that will determine your future. It is your basic habits and your basic habits on how to ride a horse. If there's good, they're good, the rest will just take care of itself. And that's it takes a while to convince people of that because we're in a right now, let's hurry, uh, immediate gratification times. And people don't quite understand that it takes years and years and years to get good at this. If you look at the average age of the top riders who have sustained success, it's um, they're getting up there. They've been at it a long time because right. that's what it takes to learn to do it. Right. The other thing that's so interesting about the sport is from vets to blacksmiths to course designers to grooms to riders, every aspect. It starts at good and just goes straight up from there. That's how advanced it was. And when I first started, that was certainly not the case. There were a lot of not very good blacksmiths, 
Mm. Uh, vets, course designers, riders, and, and, and grooms. And now everybody is really, really good. And that's where it starts. Definitely. Yeah, I love that. You work with a lot of competitive horses and riders. Amy, what can riders at any level be doing at home to make sure that they're prepared for a show situation? Or let's say, you know, they have goals to be more competitive when they're competing. Well, I think it's really important to watch the top level of sport, you Mm -hmm. know, to get out there and see the Grand Prix that are happening here in Wellington or you know, um, in Canada, when the major league comes and we get those five-star Grand Prix, they got to come out and walk the courses and watch how we warm up and watch what it really takes to get a sense of what it really takes. Right. I also uh, am a strong believer in your own physical fitness and flexibility and strength and proper nutrition and all of those kind of things, because if you're going to go and ask the most of your horse, you should come out there fit, fed, mentally calm and ready. And that's how you're going to get the most out of your animal. A hundred percent. I'm so happy that this has become more of an emphasis in the industry that it's not that just the horses are athletes, but we need to assume the responsibility of being an athlete as well. And that, you know, includes cross training and health and um, just being able to pull our own weight um, figuratively and literally when we are getting ready to compete. If you go off to Pilates or the gym, first thing in the morning, any day here in Wellington, who you're going to see are the top riders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's where they are. They And they are as fit as, to Amy's point, they are as fit and ready as you could imagine. Definitely. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, that's a, a great point. And to Amy's point, looking at the top of the sport, really trying to mirror what those top riders are doing. And for sure, they are doing that. Amy, what is a typical week look like leading up to a show or maybe even a week a week before a show as you are maybe doing you know one more jump school or getting things prepared for a big event well i think that uh it's important you know I, when I, the new students coming into the barn or something like that they'll ask you know if it's a if it's a younger person they'll say the, the mother will say you know how, how many lessons a week are we going to take mm-hmm. and so I explain that all of that is tailored to the horse's needs and the competition schedule. And so basically uh, when we were getting the horses that we were getting ready to show this week, it depended on what those horses needed. My top horses, they're pretty in the game and ready and they needed one little jump school on Friday or Saturday. I like to give them nice recovery time. Uh, especially when it's as hot as it is down here before they go over to the field. And they really don't need much because we're Mm -hmm. in this location where they're very, it's all familiar to them and they're pretty on the program. But uh, that being said, um, if the last time I competed with my horse, I had a little bit of an issue. I for sure, we for sure go back and we fix that issue. You know, if there was a kind of jump that or a combination that that horse didn't do well at the show, I'm not just going to go back and hope that it fixed itself. So we replicate uh, what, what the, what we had trouble with in the ring and in our ring at home and we practice it until we can get it right. They Mm -hmm. are creatures of habit. So they learn through repetition. And so if your horse has trouble with a, vertical oxer combination then you go home and you build that vertical oxer combination and 
get it, get them confident at it and get them capable. And so that when they go in the ring, they know what to do. And with the students, sometimes it's a little bit, you have to balance the amount the rider needs to practice as well as the amount that the horse needs to practice. For mine, it's mostly about just fine tuning what the horse needs for their competition. For the students, um, yes, I understand that they need to practice a couple times before the show and stuff like that. But there's a lot you can do with them. Um, because you know, some people have four horses and some people have one horse. Right. And if somebody has one horse, you can't lessen it three times and then expect it to go to the show. Mm-hmm. So, well, lessen it over fences. You you shouldn't really. So we do a lot of rail exercises and cavaletti exercises and things that are easy on the horse's body, but the rider gets the exact same practice because our philosophy is if you can do it over a foot high jump, you can probably do it over a five foot high jump. Because mm-hmm. if you keep the same mindset, it's the same exercise, really. Right, right. I don't know about you, but when I first started my businesses, it can feel super lonely and really overwhelming with all of the things that you feel like you have to do. But it doesn't have to be that way. What would it feel like to have all the time in the world set aside to strategize, organize, and actually brainstorm for your business and not just try to catch up on your email inbox? Miranda from Marketing for the Uninhibited has been my business coach for the past year, and she has helped me with just that. Unlock your marketing with her, and she has a new one-on-one marketing intensive, which is four weeks of virtual support. If you need help with stuff like branding, marketing messaging, content strategy, a marketing plan, and specific goals, then this is seriously perfect for you. Miranda has helped me so much with my business, and she made it go from like a side job that I was doing to a multi six-figure business. Miranda will be there to cheer for you, coach you, and support you via text, email, Voxer for the entire four weeks as you execute your custom 30-day marketing plan. Use code Bethany at checkout at marketinguninhibited.com for 10% off your Marketing Unlocked service. Again, that is marketinguninhibited.com and use code Bethany at checkout. You talked about weather. It was like in Florida, like overnight it turned into summer. <laughs> I feel like it oh. was just chilly. And now it's yeah. it's been so hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> the Canadians are finding it hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ian, what would you say are some of your, Amy alluded to some exercises, cavalettis, things to do. What are some of your favorite exercises to set up at home? I would say trot and canter gymnastics are, are my go-to. And um I got a file somewhere at home where I keep putting these things and I should do something with them because there's an endless amount of gymnastics and I design them around what a horse doesn't do particularly well when he's galloping the jumps in the ring. And if you trace it backwards, you could normally come up with a gymnastic which will address the problem and uh, it becomes the education aspect and galloping in the ring is the application. You don't fix it by just going back in the ring. You fix it by coming home, breaking it down, finding the root cause of the problem and fixing it. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, you should do something with those. I'm sure a lot of people would love to see that. And, and I, I, do, I come up with new ones all the time because <laughs> we might be at the ring with a horse and I see it do something and I give great thought to how to fix it. And then I come back and I come up with a gymnastic that will address it. Yeah. What's a common problem that you see that you try to address at home? 
probably one of the greatest things when we're when we're getting a horse broke or trained is to um, get the collection right. And it, it, I read a great one the other day. It was how do you how do you collect a horse? And of course, many people are going to say, well, here's what you do with your leg and your hand and your seat and your back and on and on and on. Well, the correct answer was you get him forward, you get him straight, you get him in a rhythm and you create balance and he will automatically then be collected. Hmm. So you, you, you do that. You don't actually collect a horse. You do the other four things and they will be collected. Hmm. Once you get him in that position, then you, you really teach the half halt. And you teach the half halt through doing full halts, full transitions. And if it's done correctly, you can get that half halt where you almost don't even use your hand. It's just your upper body and your leg that are going to get the half halt for you. And then you're really influencing balance and straightness and all the other factors. Because what course designers will do to you, of course, is they alter the distances. So you have to lengthen and shorten the stride while keeping a certain balance and a certain rhythm. And that's all about the half halt and the so-called collection or balance. Yeah. Wow. That's it's such a great point and such maybe something that's often overlooked or not, you know, fully, you know, like worked on and, you know, done 100 percent. But it is a make or break in the ring. And the, and the time it takes, the time mm-hmm. it takes to, to train a horse to do all this is quite remarkable. Mm. And if you, if you consider... Uh, yielding, yielding the pressure. That's it's a funny expression, but the idea is when you when you apply pressure with your leg, the horse should respond to that pressure by going forward. If you if you apply pressure to the bars of the mouth, the horse should yield to that pressure by slowing down. But unfortunately, so many horses learn to come right back at the pressure, and then the answer is, well, we'll get a we'll get a spur, or or we'll get a bigger bigger bit, and we'll overpower instead of slowly educating the horse to give in to that request. Right. And if you can get them to give in to the request, now you've got a partner, now you're going to get a winner. Right. We're all chasing, you know, our own version of success in our sport. Often, I feel like, you know, kind of what you were saying, Amy, that the conversation tends to focus on the wins and um, whether that's just, you know, wins in general with your program or wins in competition and maybe not always on the mistakes or learning moments, like I like to call them, that maybe happen along the way, that definitely happen along the way. When looking back at your career, Amy, what are some learning moments that you feel like really made you what you are today with with your program? Oh, there's been so many different moments when little things turned, you know, and and that's the thing that we always talk about is that the last 20% that you want to gain takes 80% of the effort. And so I've been working on this last 20% for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I gain one little percentage point, there's something I heard or I did, or I saw at this point, I celebrate so hard. So as of late, I mean, you gotta, you can't, you can't win anything these days unless you are fast. I don't know if you watched the jump off of the Grand Prix last week, yeah. but that was ridiculous with 14 in it. And Kent was 
third. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that says it all right there. That's the the girl the girl who went first. I thought was going to be third, and I think she was like seventh. Mm-hmm. Anyway, point being, you got to go fast. Yeah. So uh, in order to go fast you really got to be able to turn. And that's been a big thing for me as of late is just getting these horses to really roll back fast and pick up that first distance out of a short turn like that. Yeah. How you keep the horse rolling from behind on a short turn at a high speed, straight <laughs> enough so that you can make all this happen. And as of late, what I tell myself is, I mean, it goes back actually to, to what we were talking about is that you got to come through that corner with that horse carrying its own balance and yielding to the pressure of your outside aids. Because if I'm pulling my horse through the corner, then I can't do it. If he is carrying me through the corner and listening to my outside aids, so when I see that distance, I just turn in and go, then that's when things really start to work. So that's that's a big one for me. I also talked about the physical fitness thing. And I mean, I have two children and a very busy lifestyle and a business and, and my own career act. Uh, aspirations. Uh, But at this stage in my life and career, I find it really important to bump that my own physical fitness and strength right up there because it really, if you feel strong enough that you're never going to fall off your horse because your, your, your position is so strong and that's physically strong and a strong position. So a, a classic correct position, then you get so much confidence from that. You get so much confidence from from the from the fact that you think you could stay in the middle of the animal no matter what the animal does. Totally. And confidence goes a long way. Definitely. Ian, what would you say is something that you are passionate about in the industry that you feel like people either don't talk a lot about or don't know enough about? If your riding starts and ends at the mounting block, you'll never be a true horse person. Mm-hmm. So what I really, I uh, I grew up, Part of my upbringing was the Pony Club. And it's a shame that the Pony Club isn't stronger because so many of the young people that that come to these eight shows do not have a Pony Club uh, background. So they would not really know how to pack a foot or uh, pull a mane or clean a sheath or do all these other things that all the barn rats learned how to do, all the barn rats in the Pony Club learned how to do. Right. And um, I was actually on a committee in in Canada a couple of years ago, and I tried to get the Pony Club incorporated into the whole coaching and training thing. And and, uh, it's still a work in progress. The Pony Club's pretty independent in Canada. But to me, those basics and and really becoming a horse person is critical. When, When I talk to these top riders, it's just great fun to talk to them because they all have two things in common. They are students and they're humble. And all they want to do, they'll ask, they'll say, what, did you watch me in that jump off? Did you watch me in that round? I'll say, yeah, I did. And they say, well, what, what did you think went on there? And they just really want, they don't want, they don't want me to blow smoke at it. They want me to tell them the truth, exactly what I thought, right. saw and thought, because maybe there's a little something there for them. And these are top people in the world. They're all like that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Amy, what about you? What would be something in the industry that you feel like people either don't talk a lot about or don't know that much about? It's along the same lines. It's, it's about horsemanship and the joy of knowing your horse and training your horse and really learning everything about them. Mm-hmm. So you can you can have the best bet or blacksmith in the world, but 
we are the ones who see these horses every single day. I am the one who rides my horse six days a week. So little tiny changes in their behavior or their movement or whatever it is, I'm going to be the first one to observe that. And if I don't understand the significance of it, then I can't help my vet or my blacksmith or whoever it is to see and fix a problem before it becomes a problem. And really at the end of the day to do what what we really want to do, the horses and riders and everyone needs to be at 110%. And so finding and, and longevity of these horses careers, like if you get a good one, I mean, they are hard to come by. So mm-hmm. you, you want, you want to stretch their career as long as you possibly can. And if you can sense, you know, what's going on with them before there ever is a problem, then maybe you avoid injury. Maybe you extend their career. You're definitely going to make them happier animals and happier animals perform better. Right. I feel like this whole episode went full circle because that's how we definitely how we started the interview. And it's so true. And it's we really if we can remember at our core why we started this sport and why we keep going, because I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. It's long days. You don't have a lot of days off. It's it can be grueling at times. But if we can you know, continue to stick to our core of, you know, the love for the sport, the love for the horse, the love for the animal and build off of that, I mean, then you're finding emphasis on just knowing your horse, spending time with your horse, riding your horse. And obviously competition is part of that, but it's not the end all be all. And I think you guys implement, you know, that into your, your training philosophy so well, and it shows because your horses are happy. They're ready to thrive in any environment. And, um, you're really able to put all of that into a healthy perspective. Thank you. And, uh, We've got time for a quick story about Jonathan and Amy's background. Oh, I'd love to hear it. So uh, many years ago, my late wife, uh, Jonathan, my son, and Amy's mother, uh, she loved to go to the racetrack in the fall and look at horses. But she wasn't, she wouldn't really buy them. She'd just look at them. And so when it came to buying them, I had to go. So I'd go with the the truck and a checkbook. And of course, I was swarmed. And I didn't end up going home with six or eight racehorses, three, three, four-year-olds. And we would give half of them to Jonathan and half of them to Amy and say, see you in a month. Let's see what you can do with these horses. And at the end of the month, they might have traded around a little bit. And they'd experimented and done their thing. But the idea was teach them to walk, trot, canter, jump a little bit and uh, see if we can add some value and find a good horse. And what a, I believe that was a lovely, lovely training exercise for both of them. Amy? Oh, 100%. Um, and I think that that's a little bit the advantage that the Europeans have on us right now is that now over there, they're doing that with the, with the warm bloods and they can you can take so many more horses to so many more shows at an affordable price over there that the young people probably get a lot more chances for a lot less money. And that was what we were getting. We were getting a a real chance to learn how to train horses and ride horses. And then if they were good enough, take them to the show uh, for not a lot of money. So it's great. So cool. Uh, Well, Ian and Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I have loved hearing from you and you're just a wealth of knowledge. So I appreciate you taking the time and I wish you all the best. And good luck with your, your training and competition. Thank you. 
All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.